Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Skyler Lichty. Skyler is a third generation mobile home park owner and a founding member of American Dream Communities. During his career, he has overseen numerous types of mobile home communities, including stabilized, turnaround, and value-add opportunities. He has held manufactured housing retailer licenses, broker licenses, installer licenses in Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Kentucky, Skyler has owned communities in Texas, Missouri, Oklahoma, Kentucky, and Kansas with a total pad count of nearly 5,000 spaces. Wow. The portfolio is currently comprised of over 2,000 home sites, placing it in the top 100 of park owners in North America. The most recent American Dream Communities Fund was a $15 million equity fund. Wow. Skylar, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate this opportunity. Wonderful. Let's jump right in here and get started with the questions. Would you mind starting out by telling our listeners a little bit about your background and, you know, how you got into manufactured housing? Sure. Absolutely. So as you mentioned in my introduction, I'm a third generation mobile home park owner and operator. Uh, I acquired my first community Um, In 2001, 2001, 2002, uh, we kind of started our path within the family. And um, when 2009, when we formed American Dream Communities, that was kind of the movement outside of the family uh, portfolio into more institutional type syndication assets. Awesome. And I, I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about this because, you know, not many mobile home park operators you know, had a, you know, a business back in 2008, 2009. And right. could you tell us a little bit about that time and the recess, recession resistant, you know, or sure. non characteristics you saw at that time in this asset class? Sure. So I think like anything, Andrew, it's one of those things where depending on what region you're in, what market, those are going to have, those are going to impact uh, communities differently. Our communities um, through 08, 09, we really didn't see much of a hiccup, you know, collections as with this COVID situation remained relatively stable. Um, we had a couple of move outs. We went out and did what we do now, bought new homes, replace those lots, you know, resold or release those homes. So again, I think it's one of those things that the guys and gals in the industry who are paying attention knew what they had to do. Tend to tended to uh, go through the recession fairly well. I think it'll be the same thing here with COVID. The guys and gals paying attention and know what to do, they'll do just fine in this asset class. Awesome, awesome. Tell us, Skylar, what is the hardest part about this business in your eyes? So I'll tell you, it's interesting because we were chatting about this right before we went into the interview here. It's in our judgment and in my judgment, the hardest thing is finding the right people. You got to have the right people on your, for us, for our corporate team, for our onsite team, whether we, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we like it or not, we're in the people business. 
yeah. whether it's hand, working with our team, whether it's working with our residents, our vendors. I mean, that's just really what it is. So um, what's interesting is kind of the flip side of that equation is once you have the right team in place, I mean, it's 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 amazing because you could do things you you really didn't think you could do when everyone's flowing together. I mean, you could just sit back and kind of say, wow, this is this is how it's supposed to be type of deal. Totally. And so do you guys have your own management company? Yeah, we do. So, so our management company, we manage the deals we own, and then we also have a third-party management platform. So that's something that we're, we're pretty selective on who we manage for. Uh, we really feel like on our third-party platform, we want to be good partners to the people that we're managing their asset. Everyone has a different viewpoint of how the asset should run, how it should be managed. So for the for the groups out there that we manage, um, we're we're really good partners with because it's the same vision, it's a shared vision. So yeah, we do we do both. We manage our own assets and then we do third party management as well. Wonderful, wonderful. And, and tell me, Skylar, what does the perfect community look like in your eyes? And you know, what are the what do the communities look like that you prefer to manage? Okay, great question. So you know, there's kind of a kind of a two two part question, right? So <laughs> One, what's a, what's a perfect asset? You know, it's a hundred percent occupied, fifty-five plus retirement community in Florida. Just picture perfect, no tenant issues ever. So that's, I mean, that's what the ideal community looks like. Now, what that also means is it's very challenging to get a current yield when you buy assets like that. Now that it can be done, but it's a challenge. So I would say, from a investor standpoint, from a yield standpoint. You know, we're going to look at a, a good market. Maybe it's a primary, secondary market, big MSA. We're going to find an ugly park or a park that's completely mismanaged. And those are the deals we want to buy. We want to put the right management policies into place. We want to fix what needs to be fixed. And that to us is something that a lot more challenging. But I think the rewards are, are, are a lot bigger on those type of, those type of projects. Totally. And this, this may be, you know, market specific, but what cap rate, you know, do you look to pay on, on those primary market kind of mismanaged assets? Yeah, good question. So when we, when we look at a cap rate, I think a lot of times people maybe don't fully appreciate as you and I and the other investors out there. I mean, a cap rate is supposed to be a reflection of the risk. So if you're buying a deal that has that has been mismanaged, uh, you know you're gonna you're gonna pay a different a different cap rate for because you got a different risk profile. The flip side of that also is if you buy a property that is really mismanaged, maybe the owner doesn't keep up with the repairs, doesn't you know keep up with the market rent. Um, in today's market, you may find on current numbers you're buying an ultra low cap rate. So. Um, you know, just, you know, for example, we bought a property in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, it was a little over a hundred, a hundred unit park. Uh, there were about 35 vacant, vacant home sites in it. And what we were able to do is go in, uh, do the repairs, uh, and fill up the vacant home sites and take that asset from, call it, you know, mid 200 lot rent up to about 400 lot rent, which is a market rent. So for us, that was a, that was a really good illustration of the deals we look for. So 
current cap, the current cap rate on that, I think we paid, you know, a, a two cap, but it really didn't matter because you, you, when you step back and look at what the asset had the potential of being, that's kind of how we underwrite it as well. So it's not just always, you know, hey, going in, we're going to buy a seven cap on current income. Stabilized deals, full market, full boat. I mean, yeah, you, you know, you're probably, <clears throat> probably today's market, depending on what market you go into, call it, you know, four to a six cap in a major market. Great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, so you, you, you put a lot of value uh, up front on, you know, what it's going to be, you know, post the re, uh, post the rehab, you know, post the renovation yeah. work and improvements. Right. 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 Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so as we talked about, you know, prior to this, uh, recording, you know, a lot of our listeners are passive investors in other asset classes, you know, multifamily self-storage, et cetera. So what are the most important things you think that those passive investors need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks, you know, what are those big risks that, uh, you know, that they should be aware of if, if they're not familiar with the asset class entirely? Right. Good point. So I think the first thing is probably like any investment, you want to, you want to be comfortable with the sponsor. You want to make sure that they've done it before. You want to make sure that they're um, invested in the deal. Uh, you want to make sure that, that, that they're willing to do the industry normal stuff, such as if you buy a project that's going to require a lot of fill, those homes mean you're going to have to sign on on full recourse debt. So sponsors who aren't willing to do it, don't invest in their own deal, have no track record, uh, doesn't make it a bad deal, doesn't you know, doesn't make them an incapable sponsor. It just those are the things I think the the limo partners really should should look into. I think that's a really big key to it. Simply, you know, we've seen deals out there and guys who say, hey, we can, we can do you know, 30, 40, 50 home sites. We can fill 50 home sites a year. And while they may be able to do that, industry data out there doesn't support uh, something like that. So I think the more seasoned sponsors are going to put out projections that, that are closer to reality. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point that I'll, I'd like to talk a little bit more about. You know, when you sure. guys bring in homes for infill, I mean, yep. on, on all of our previous interviews, everybody has said that infill is like the toughest part of oh, yeah. the business. Like it's the most yep. labor intensive, time intensive process uh, in terms of any sort of value add, right? Mm -hmm. And the easiest is raising rents, you know, to market. Yes. So uh, with the infill process, you know, do you guys prefer new homes? Uh, have you ever done used homes? And, you know, what are some of your tips uh, or maybe just overall feelings on that process, uh, you know, for, for yeah. investors so they're aware of what's involved? Yeah, yeah. So, so good question. So I think everyone knows really in this asset class, there's primarily two ways that you can increase valuations. One is infill. The second is raising grants. You know, we've, we've done well at projects doing both sides of it. We're a little bit different. In our when we buy when we buy an asset that's a pure rent in escalation play, we look at it and we say, okay, what's wrong with this community that we can fix, right? Because I, I think most people don't mind paying market lot rent if the community looks the way it should look, right? So we bought a property here in Texas uh, last year. We went in; it was about two hundred dollars under market rent. 
Uh, we went in, we spent about $300,000 on streets, put in a new playground, fixed all the stuff that needed to be fixed. We, I mean, we did a very large rent increase and most of the people said, thank you. So, which is, which is different because, you know, if you go in and you just say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to crank rents to market and we're going to put no capital back in. I, I don't know that you'll get the same response from, from your residents. Yeah, so totally, the, totally agree. On, you know, on the, on the fill side of things, I mean, that's absolutely correct. That is one of the most challenging uh, value add propositions simply because when you buy a home, you bring it in. So for us, it's all new homes. We've gone down the used home route. Truthfully, I think that's a fool's errand to try and source a bunch of used homes. Sourcing one or two for a park, no problem. But what we consistently found when we tried to source used homes is by the time you buy it, move it in, rehab it, you're within about 15% of the new home. And it's a lot more brain damage trying to source them, fix them, go through that whole process compared to buying a new home. The other side of that is, you know, kind of as we've talked about with the value add, when you're moving in brand new homes, the rest of the residents view that as a, as a, as a shot of lifeblood into the community. They view that as, okay, someone's really sitting up, paying attention. They want to bring this community back to a nice, great place to live. So there's a lot of benefits with, with going in with the new homes compared to the used homes. But yeah, it's 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 definitely a challenge, a challenging piece of it. When you buy the new homes, you bring them in. You don't know how long it's going to take to deck them and put on skirting and all those components. You don't know if the city's going to change the rules on you, which has <laughs> happened to us. We brought in, you know, 15 new homes to community, and they said, "Well, our, our setbacks are actually X." And we said, well, "Wait, wait, wait!" During diligence, we got it in writing. Uh, it's this. They said, "Well, they misunderstood." So. Got to oh. comply to this. So you got all sorts of unknowns. But I mean, the, the the flip side of that is a huge value creation if you can pull it off. Totally. Yeah, totally agree with you there. So you guys currently have a fund, right? Uh, Correct. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that and, and kind of what your outlook or business plan is uh, through your current sure. fund? Yeah, sure. So all of our funds, we're, we're wrapping up our second fund right now. Uh, we anticipate launching a third fund probably by the end of this year, first of next year. All of our funds are a 10-year time horizon. The, the difference of our fund and some of the other funds out there, um, I'm not saying theirs is bad. I'm just saying ours is different. Uh, for our limited partners, they get a 7% preferred return on all their dollars that go in. Of the cash flow, 100% goes back as a return of capital. So, meaning as the sponsor and as the GP, we have a management fee in place and some other fees as far as acquisition fee, disposition fee, the typical things there. But from a, from a profit center, there's no profit to the GP until 100% of the equity is paid back at the fund level. Meaning we have eight, eight communities in a fund. We don't just say, oh, we paid back equity on deal number one. Now we get half of the cash flow. It's at a fund level, which is, a, which is different than a lot of the guys out there that are doing funds. Um, and then after that, it's a 50-50 it's a cash flow split. And then it's 50-50 on the upside. 
so, ah, yeah, that's so, great. So, yeah. So, so again, like our, our thought process is this, if we get into deals, we hope they're going to go the right way. Most of them have gone the right way because we have the right partners. We have the right structure. If the economy just tanks as it has been, right. And the deals go the wrong way. You know, what's, what's the worst case? The worst case scenario is our, our limited partners lose money. So we've really structured this deal to try and get everyone's equity back as, as quickly as possible. So that's done through cash flow. That's done through um, refinances. So some of our deals are big value adds. So we can move the needle pretty quick in a, in a period of time, go from a bridge to a permanent debt situation and do a cash out there once they're stabilized. Great. Yeah. There's a, there's a pretty similar model across the board that a lot of operators yeah. use, including myself, you know, the, okay. the, the buy fix up and uh, refinance uh, model. So, but yeah, no, those, those are, those seem very competitive. Your, your terms uh, of your fund yeah. there. Uh, quick yeah. question before I forget, what is your, your thoughts on the park owned home model versus the tenant owned home model? So I think if you could buy a park with all park-owned homes, you're going to have less turnover. Your expenses are going to be uh, more stabilized if they're all, you know, tenant-owned homes. Whenever you get into the park-owned homes, you know, your expenses look different. You have some up and down in the revenue. But I think the reality is there's very few parks out there that are all tenant-owned homes. I think the reality in our industry is it's there's park on home components. Now, I think there's a difference between buying a park that's you know, 30, 35% park owned home compared to buying one that's 100% park owned home. Mm-hmm. That to me starts feeling very much like, an, like a hybrid of an apartment complex. So I think that model is different. Um, that's not really a model that we've dabbled in. We tend to like to buy deals kind of on the outside at 40 to 45% park-owned homes. And then what we do is we'll go in, we'll try and convert those to uh, people to have home ownership. So whether we can convert them from a rental to a lease-to-own model, whether we convert them from a rental into a consumer finance through some of the groups out there. The objective for us, and it's really how we, you know, why we call our company American Dream Communities is, you know, the American dream is home ownership. So our objective on the park owned homes is to get people in a position to own as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's great. And that's, that's similar to what we do as well. Uh, yeah. Would you mind shedding a little bit of light on like your lease option program or, or what's worked for you on some of the communities that you've purchased in, in how you've converted those park owned homes? Maybe you have some percentages. It's kind of like industry... Uh, I don't know if it's a myth, I guess, where they say, yeah. you know, a third, a third, a third, you know, your park owned homes, a third of them are going to want to stay rentals. A third of them will convert to a, a lease option or similar. And then a third of them will move out. Would you say that's accurate or would you, you know, say you've, you've had different numbers? Yeah. So I think, I think that's a, a broad brush, right? Yeah. So what we have found in, in the communities we go in that have, uh, for example, we bought a small community here in Texas, about 60 units. Um, of that, 45 were park-owned rentals, hmm. predominantly 80s and 90s vintage on the homes. We, when we went in, I think this is about two years of ownership now. I believe we've flipped about 75% of those. So we went in and you know pitched everyone on, hey, we want you to be 
homeowners because that's what our objective is at a at a corporate level. Not many people. I think we had one or two of the 45 that signed up for it. The rest of them, when the end of their lease came up, they moved out. We made them ready. And all the new people we've put into a lease option. So I think for us, we've been very successful with vacant units, putting them into a lease option. The conversion from rental into a lease option. Uh, the reason I think that we have trouble, and I don't know if it's just that, maybe it's just us, I don't know, but a renter is a different mindset than someone who wants to own the home. Yeah. So it's a tough, it's a t- tough mindset conversion of, hey, your rental, you don't have to take care of any of the repairs at all to we're going to convert you into a lease option where you're going to have some responsibility on repairs. You're going to have some responsibility on upkeep. So I think that's the biggest challenge that we've seen. And we've done it in Texas. We've done it in Missouri. We've done it in Kansas. We've done it in Oklahoma. So either it's us or it's the mindset of the renter compared to someone who wants to homeown. Yeah, no, I, I agree. We have parks across 11 states and it's very, very similar uh, across where yeah. we own is, you know, just that mindset, like you're saying, you know, they're just, they're not used to owning things. They're used to renting and uh, you just get a different outcome. Uh, would yeah. you say, you know, there's like a set percentage uh, or is it just variable depending on the park? Yeah, it's, I, it really is variable depending on the park. Uh, you, you know, it may be a situation where you get get more buy-in on the front end. And part of that, I believe, is also the ownership you buy it from. If yeah. you are buying it from an ownership that is treating everyone fairly, is trying to make improvements to the community, you will have more buy-in, right? Because the, the, the guy renting the home looks around and says, hey, community looks the right way. This is somewhere that I really want to stay. On the other hand, on the deals that are the heavy value adds, where you got infrastructure issues, you got tenant issues, you got all those things going on. Even when you start doing the improvements, it's it's still a tough conversion because someone who's willing to live in a C minus asset, when you bring it up to a B plus, it's it's a different tenant profile. Mm-hmm. So it's that that's one of the things. Also, I think if if you went into you know A or B community and it was a lot of rentals, you definitely are going to get more buy-in. Some of the senior parks in Florida. You know, they have programs where they rent to the rent to the 55 plus, they rent it for a year, they convert them into ownership. And that's because that type of an asset they're looking at, do I like the amenity package? Do I like the manager? Do they have the right events? So they want to try it and they're eventually going to buy it. I don't know that that translates over to the family parks the same way though, or all age yeah. parks, should I say? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, with us, we make it very, very attractive to people that, you know, when we come in and buy and there's some park owned homes, uh, just the, the path to ownership, kind of like you were mentioning earlier, we make yeah. it where it's like, it's a no brainer. You know, we're not trying to like, you know, get rich off selling these homes. Uh, and, right. and, and I think when, once we kind of show them that, you know, they, they kind of become more interested in it and, and interested in, in owning the homes. But but yeah, it's very market specific, you know, like we had yeah. a park near Memphis that was completely different than a park in, uh, up near Grand Forks, North Dakota. So yeah, I think, I think that's important. So quick question on you, uh, in, in your, your fund, do you guys put money into, uh, your funds? Do you also like yeah. sign recourse if that's required? 
Yeah, good good question. So in all of our in all of our funds, all of our pre-fund investments, we we really started the evolution from a single entity asset. We had investors who said, "Hey, I want to be able to identify the park that I'm involved in." Uh, which that that's worked out okay for us. The fund gives us the ability with the investors to um, smooth out the ride of the value adds, right? So we have some stabilized deals that produce a nice cash flow. And then we have the value add deals that, you know, you could be two to three years with no cash flow because it's, you know, it's a huge lift job. So all of our deals we do invest in, um, every single one of the deals where we have either recourse on the park, recourse on the homes. So I, I think recourse to us, we've, we've become comfortable with that uh, function of debt in this, in this space. Um, I, mean, I think everyone would prefer the non-recourse debt on the park, but value add deals, I, I just I don't see how you can do that. So our yeah. typical model on the value add has been a, a bridge to a permanent. So maybe it's a local bank, maybe it's a you know regional bank or a lender. They give us a couple year bridge. That gives us a time to go in, fix it, fill it, lease it, get rents to market, make it look the right way, and then go into the permanent market. Great. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, I guess what's your, uh, what's your plan for 10 years from now? What do you, what do you think that looks like Skylar? Yeah. So, so our internal objective is to grow to 10,000 spaces. Uh, it's going to take us a couple more funds, but that's where we're, that's where we're headed to. Uh, as far as an exit, you know, I think our, our funds are structured on 10 years and uh, at the end of 10 years, I think we'll, we'll ask the limited partners what they want to do if they want to sell everything or they want to, you know, ride along for a little bit longer. So we, we haven't fully defined in our minds what the 10-year exit plan looks like. Gotcha. You mentioned a little bit earlier about the GPLP splits for your fund. Right. Uh, but would you right. mind just shedding a little bit of light on the typical fees, you know, acquisition fee, sure. fee dispo, property management, you know, just and just what those look like and what they cover? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, um, on the acquisition fee, we charge uh, three points of an acquisition fee, and that is a typical real estate brokerage commission. I shouldn't say typical because some brokers out there, you know, they charge up to 10% of a commission. So the one thing that is, is predominantly different about our group is all of the deals we have bought to date have been off market. They've been principal to principal transactions. Hmm. So those deals uh, require, I'm not going to say more effort, but different effort. So we have deals that we've been working on buying for the last 15 years. This year is going to be the year that they come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So as far as the ongoing fees, 6% management fee, property management fee, uh, there's a disposition fee, which is 3%. Uh, other than that, we try and keep the fees you know, skinny down, right? So acquisition and management, uh, the way we look at it is within our fund, if we went into the on-market deals, there would be a there would be a, a potential commission to pay. If we outsource the third-party management, there would be a fee to pay. And from our point of view, yeah, I, I, I'm not exactly sure how a syndicator can outsource management and have a, the same grasp of what is going on on the grounds. Now, I know there are guys out there who do it and they do a good job of it, but it's for us, we really want to be in the weeds with everything going on at the property level. 
Yeah. And I think that's uber important. And I, I do the same thing. How many employees yep. do you have on your property management company? So right now we have, when we're fully staffed, so I'm not sure if we're fully staffed today or not, but when we're fully staffed, we're about 55 employees. Wow. So big operation. It's, it's a big operation. So we have everything from, you know, district managers, area managers, community managers, assistant community managers, um, maintenance guys, all the way from regional guys to lead make ready guys, because that's, I'll tell you, that's, that's an important component of, of any park is if you have park owned homes, you got to have make ready guys who can know what they're doing. They can put the product back together if there's any turn. I think that's one of the things we found on uh, the mom and pop type operators or even the small regional type guys is they, they miss that component of it's, I mean, make readies can eat your lunch. If you're not paying attention to it, if you're not putting them back in service as quick as possible, if you're not leasing them, I mean, it can turn a profitable park into an unprofitable park very, very quickly. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, real quick, would you mind sharing a, a case study uh, of something that, you know, a, a negative case study and a positive case study, you know, break it down, sure. like what, maybe you had one park and, and some really bad struggles with that park. Maybe you can elaborate what those were and then, you know, share a, share a good one as well. So we could see the opposite side of it. Yeah, absolutely. So the very first deal we syndicated was a park in Missouri. Uh, we drove through the town, town looked good. The park looked good. You know, the sweet old lady who had managed it for the last 15 years for the out-of-state owner, everything looked exactly like it should. So we got into the deal. Uh, we found out post-closing that the manager had been titling a bunch of abandoned homes into her name. Mm. She had been running. So basically, we had a, uh, a partner we didn't realize we were going to have <laughs> in the deal. Jeez. So. We worked through that. Our, our, our biggest, that was our first deal. Our biggest mistake we made there was we structured it wrong. Meaning first deal out of the box, friends, family, neighbors, everyone who invests with us like, look, guys, we're going to give you the money, but if you can't make it work, we're not putting anything else in. So we didn't structure capital calls appropriately. And I can't emphasize that enough. Any syndicator, you, you don't want to be undercapitalized. You don't want to try and juice the returns by not raising enough money. You got to have the money because there's a hundred percent of time unexpected stuff. So that was, that was our first deal. We structured it wrong. Um, over about a six year run, you know, it was about an 80% return of equity. So we, we had a loss on that deal. It's the only deal we've had a loss on today. And again, we structured things completely different. Now we've moved into the fund model, which is um, which is a much better structure. I think it spreads out risk. So that's that's kind of the bad deal we did, the very first deal. Um, you know, we we have a couple of deals right now that we're working on refinances that we've done very well on. So you know, we we're talking a little bit about you know the value add, whether it's a rent in, increase, whether it's a just a fill. So just you know, one of our properties, for example is in Tulsa. It's 60 units. We bought it. I, I'm surprised the city hadn't condemned it. I mean, it was, the streets looked like they had never been fixed, <laughs> never been repaired. I mean, almost every home that was there 
was like halfway dilapidated. I mean, it was just a train wreck. So we bought the property. We spent about $200,000 on street works, the off street, the new asphalt. We put in 40 new homes. We leased up 40 new homes. Wow. So we took an asset that looked condemned and we, you know, we basically 5X the value we paid for it over an 18 month, 18 to 20 month period. So that's a, I mean, that's a challenge to do. That's a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> we have another deal here in Texas. We bought same type of deal. It was, um, it was extremely under market rent, but it was full. And that you can understand the streets were in really rough shape. No one had done any repairs so that the residents were okay living there because hey, it's the cheapest rent in town. I don't mind driving down the streets and my you know, popping tires every week because <laughs> everything's all jacked up. It didn't matter to them, right? Yeah. So we went in, we spent about $400,000 on street work, wow. increased the value, the rental rates to market rent. We, we over the last 14 months, we've um, just about got a 3X on valuation on that deal. Wow. So again, it's, it's raising rents is easy, but doing the street work is not easy. As a principal, you got to be on site, making sure, hey, if you pay for two inches of asphalt, you're going to get two inches. They're not going to do just yep. a thin enough layer where it looks good. You got to make sure that they you know, do the proper radius so you don't have pieces break off. I mean, it's it's a lot of work. And so so that deal, obviously, it turned really quick for us. Um, the resident cleanup, you know, we're still in the process of the resident cleanup right now, but you know, I'm, I'm hopeful we'll we'll be able to complete the cleanup without much loss of residence at that property. Man, that's fantastic. But see, those are the, those are the ones that get, give you the, the goosebumps, man. Cause that's, I mean, yeah. not only is it a win, you know, as a investment, but also you made that community look better. It probably hadn't been touched for 20, 30 years, you know? So correct for you to be able to, you know, fix that deferred maintenance, you know, I'll never forget one resident in Salem, Ohio, we, one of my first communities, I literally moved with my wife and my daughter into the community. There was a house in front of this community. We moved into it for three months and we did a ton of work to it. One of the residents came up and literally was tearing up because she was yeah. like, you know, I was embarrassed to live here for so long. I've lived here for 20 years, but now I, I feel good when I come home. You know, it, it, it just, it, and that you can't beat that. You know, that's the other side of the that's, business that just, it just, it gives absolutely. you the warm, warm fuzzies. And, and, and that's it. People come out. They're so appreciative that even, even taking rents to market, they don't care because they're not embarrassed yeah. anymore. We, we hired a, um, an assistant manager here recently of one of our properties, and it was a big turnaround deal. And I was talking to her last week, and she said, you know, I, I hated driving through this community. It was like the worst part of town. I was embarrassed to tell people I even drove through it. I don't even live yeah. here. And she's like, it's, it's a totally different deal. It's a totally different deal. It's you know, the best the analogy we use around here is when you're done with it, you clean it up, you fill it up, you do the capex. It's like giving bread to the hungry. I mean, residents are just so appreciative yeah. of it. And you can't, you're right, you can't beat it. I mean, it's a, it's a good feeling. It's a win all the way around. Totally, totally. Well, Skylar, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come and, and uh, be interviewed on this, this podcast and, and for just adding value you know, to our listeners. Uh, if any of our listeners would like to get a hold of you, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, so the best way is uh, through email. My email address is Skyler, S-K-Y-L-E-R, at 
americandreamcommunities.com. So that's kind of our investor facing website. So there's more information about us there as well. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Skylar. That's it for today's show. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Would you like to see mobile home park value add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at Passive MHP Investing for photos and awesome videos from our recent mobile home park acquisitions. Once again, that's at Passive MHP Investing on Instagram. See you there.